We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome back to the Laker Film Room Podcast. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius and Mike. And we had a week away to kind of step back. It's always important to not only zoom in, but zoom out. And in the context of this week, I got thinking about this 2021 Lakers season and Going forward, this is a team that I think is very difficult to evaluate because of the injuries. And so I think there are dangers on both sides. In the last pod that we recorded, I mentioned that if we blame everything on injuries, we're going to miss some important lessons along the way. But on the other side of that, I think there are dangers too, where certain things that would have worked had we had LeBron and AD could not because the team is fundamentally built around LeBron and AD. And we make decisions with respect to things like ball handling and shot creation where LeBron and AD are expected to absorb so much of that responsibility that more of our uh, resources can be devoted toward the defensive end. I do think that fundamentally the concept of this team is great defense plus LeBron and AD. But Darius, as we saw in the absence of those guys, they only played three consecutive games once after Valentine's Day, and that was games one, two, and three. And this team could never get their footing on the offensive end. In the absence of those guys, we were pretty bad on the offensive end, even while being good on defense. And so my question is, Darius, how do we thread that needle in a more broad view of blaming the appropriate amount on injuries while still being able to recognize, hey, we need to get better at this or that? Well, I just think that that comes down to individual player evaluation first and foremost. I go back to the sort of experiment that the Lakers ran in LeBron's first season, where it was, we're going to load up on playmaking and we want versatility and a lot of guys who can do a lot of different things. And that's how you ended up with like the Lance Stevenson types, right? To go along with how they're developing Brandon Ingram, how they're developing Lonzo Ball, how they're developing Kyle Kuzma, who at that time, it was sort of like, oh, he's a scorer. We want more punch. We want more action around LeBron. We're going to fly up and down the court. And then LeBron got hurt. 
and Ingram got hurt and Lonzo got hurt. And it was sort of just like, yeah, maybe we'll go back to the tried and true model of building around LeBron James. Right. And like, let's get a second star and let's get defense and role players and, and shooters that led to a championship. And this year I thought the Lakers tried to split the difference. They went a little bit more offense with Dennis and Trez. They tried to bring in some shooting and veteran players and leadership and defense with Wes and Mark. Kuz's development arc went off on a certain branch. And it was like, all right, this is a good enough team to win the championship. And then things fell apart with the injuries. I think you have to go back to your sort of original player evaluations that made you change the team in the way that they did in the first place. And think about how did those players actually perform within the context of what our expectations were for them as individuals for the things that we know to work around LeBron and AD. I like the way that Darius put that by analyzing what you know about the players themselves because the danger, Pete, to me in evaluating teams is especially after the All-Star break, when some teams have to go balls out, some teams are more interested in developing their young players, some teams are banged up. It's much harder to get a real gauge of who's good and who's going to be good the next year at that point of the season. And for this specific season, that's never been more true. And that's because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember where I first heard it. Uh, Pete, you may have coined it, but the term bubble tax is something that I've been finding myself saying a lot. Uh, anytime Not mine, I do but a, it's a great term. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. anytime I do an interview, uh, the, uh, whether whatever it's about or whatever, we've been doing some stuff on Locker Room recently with Ben Golliver, and I've used it for the Lakers. I just used it for Denver. Um, they're now paying their bubble tax. And part of that started when Jamal Murray went down. But as guys continued to go down, Boston paid their bubble tax. Miami paid their bubble tax. Like all the teams that are still thriving right now, um, either in the case of Brooklyn, like barely played last year. Kevin Durant's played like 50 games or 30, like maybe 40 games the last two years. Uh, Phoenix, of course, didn't actually make the playoffs after their initial run. Chris Paul comes in. Uh, Utah, who lost in the first round last year. You know, this is this is to me, these all these things are related. And then it's going to be cyclical because next year, the teams that are going to have to go all the way to the finals in late July, they're going to have to they're going to pay their tax next season at some point unless they bring in new talent. So the way that I look at the Lakers team and, and I know that a lot of the focus is on the offense. So at their 21 and six point, which was basically the Lakers for this year, it was basically the guys that carried over that were still in rhythm from the bubble plus some things around it. Um, They were 10th in offense, first in defense and first in defense by a mile. And they were just fine. And that to me is, is most is mostly like where we should make our evaluations from, as opposed to the hodgepodge of, of guys that were playing in the starting lineup once the injury started taking toll. And Mike, I would argue that we, we never had Anthony Davis this season for any stretch, right? We saw it in a, a little burst while LeBron was out toward the end of the regular season. He was great in those games two and three before he had the knee issue, and then that led to the you know the groin issue. But that beginning part of the season, that was AD in not the best shape of his career, picking and popping, never rolling to the basket. And that made sense relative to the circumstances, right? With the short offseason, there's no need to go full bore early on in the season. So even with that idea that the 21 and six Lakers were the real Lakers, quote unquote, we yeah. weren't even seeing the, the maximum of what they could have been then. And the reason the offense, to me, I think it totally is wrapped up in AD 
AD got to the free throw line 10 times. I know that was a stat that we like to use all season on Spectrum. So to just build on Pete's point, up until he went out that first time, which was February 14th, he got to the free throw line 10 times exactly three times out of that whole set of games. And that shows you that's jump shooting perimeter AD. And they still were that dominant. So aggressive AD, bubble AD, who's getting to the free throw line, Darius Damier 10 times every game. That's a whole yeah. different story. And and that Pete's right. Like that guy was, he was not yet there. He told us he wasn't there yet uh, at that point. And, and he was only just starting to get to that point when he got injured. So one thing that really struck me about the exit interviews plays into this whole idea of there was so much wistfulness from the guy and even some of the LeBron quotes that we got of like, man, I wish we could have. And that's how I, I will always look back at this year is I wish we could have gotten our footing. I wish this team could have had good help in the playoffs and like two, three weeks of playing together in their final form to ramp up for the playoffs. And we got neither of those things. And Darius, there was such a sentiment in the exit interviews of we want to run it back, that we believe in what we had here, that we believe in this group and things just didn't work out with injuries with. And again, I think that going totally to that mindset is a mistake that we will lose out on some lessons. But I would also argue that a five month off off season with the ability to have a player's camp to build towards something. A lot of guys have something to prove. There's a lot of talk about certain players and what they are. Whenever there's uh, an off season where a team falls short, they will hear all of these criticisms and for great players that fuels guys. Right. And so I would argue that in a lot of respects, just based off of circumstances, it's a 180 difference from what it was last season. Just the context going into this next season where I understand the run it back sentiment. We could do a whole pod on this, but I'm curious. Did you notice that, too? What are your thoughts on it? No, of course, the players put that idea front and center, right? Like um, every single one of them in their own way related to their own sort of experience this past season and what they're sort of looking for from the team next season, right? Dennis, it's within the context of like wanting to be here long-term and being sort of a pillar piece and, and unfinished business, right? And Wes, it's sort of end of career. I came here to accomplish something. Everything went haywire and like, I'm hungry, like, I'm as hungry for that now or maybe even hungrier than I was when I signed originally with that idea, right? Like he got a taste of what was possible and then someone snatched the plate away from him. And mm-hmm. and he's just like, wait, 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 wait. I I only got my taste, right? Like it's time to sit down for that whole meal. Like I I I want more of that. And to and to a man, almost every player is, is sort of expressed a certain sentiment like that around that that idea it's tricky though because i go back to your original question about what are these players good at what are they bad at and how do those things contribute to winning at the highest level and i think when doing those evaluations i think you almost have to use a harsher eye Right. Because one of the ideas that I think is important is I'm looking at the playoffs right now as like some of these teams are playing high level basketball. Mm -hmm. And the balance that you were talking about striking between like, hey, the injuries 
Like that matters. And oh, the individual player context, their role, what they were supposed to be within the context of those injuries, that matters. And balancing all of that is interesting because that's what Rob Palinka is going to have to do. Mm-hmm. And finding out, is this dude actually ready to play and do the things that you need to do in order to win? Are they capable of doing that on this team play next to LeBron and AD? And I think you have to use a really, really critical eye there and not resort to wistfulness because you are more informed about what these players are capable of than you were when you signed them. And if you only fall back on what your original analysis was when you acquired these players, that would be a mistake to me, Mike, like, you know, more about their limitations now than you did from scouting them when they were opposing players. There are a couple of different philosophical areas that are super interesting to me about this team. And so the first would be, uh, maybe we'll handle the second one later, because that has to do a little bit with how Phoenix is playing right now, how Utah is playing right now. And from a desperation kind of desire standpoint, so we can table that. But the first part is more in terms of roster building. And I think it's something that the three of us certainly agreed with last year and I always hear our friend Kevin Ding talk about it who saw the you know the the mid early 2000s three-peat Lakers and then covered the repeat Lakers and the injection of new blood is super important to the chances of repeating um it's this and yet there's this certain element of how many players that were part of the core can you say run it back for that you want to give the chance to do that and one recent example of that is Dallas when they let Tyson Chandler walk um, after winning. And that was a key piece, right? As a, it's, it's one thing to let some of the peripheral pieces and kind of fill them with some other guys. Now the Lakers let a key piece go in Trevor Ariza, but I think they upgraded with Ron Artest um, for that next year. So there's, this is all part of the whole team building thing. And if you're the Lakers, a lot of times you have the choice, whereas a lot of teams don't have that choice because they may not get that key player to come in. And, I thought that played out to the, in this way. If you listen to Jared Dudley's exit interview, talking about the chemistry and where it was the year before versus where it was this year, since the team didn't win, it's easy for us to think, oh, part of that is because they, they didn't have quite as defined roles as the previous year where it was LeBron, AD, and then everybody else was a role player who just pitched in. It was, you know what, you had Harold and Schroeder trying to, you know, they were former sixth man of the year and runner up and they're going to come in and they've got to find their own way to, to get their stuff. I, I think if AD stays healthy and they hadn't had the previous year with the bubble, then all that stuff probably goes away and they have more team dinners and they have more practices. So it's, it's hard for me, Pete, to separate those two, which I think was part of your original point as we get into this whole off season and, and, it's a chicken egg thing, right? And that's I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's part of, part of what we can try to untangle. Um, where I think, what, spoiler alert, well, where I will ultimately land is that when you are trying to defend your crown, you have to inject some of that new energy, even if it's a little disruptive, uh, because you need some of that extra talent. And it's just it's not going to work if one of your stars gets hurt and you're tired and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's uh, well, I know we're going to unpack a lot of it, but that to me is one of the major questions that they've got to try to find the answer to. Yeah, Dudley and Keefe's comments in particular about the team's chemistry were super interesting to me because that's an area of the game where even as close as you are, Mike, there's 
limited access to the understanding of that. And when compared to the bubble, like think of their human experience of playing on the team together. They go to they go to China together at the beginning of the season. They have the players camp. Then they end up they end that season stuck in on in this one place for almost a hundred days. And compare that to just the amount of being around each other that there is that that there was this season right where we we were it was more normal but they were less together that said when the players speak on that like Keith knows how many injuries they had Dudley knows how many injuries they had they know the lack of ideal circumstances that Darius even with all of that those guys know those things and so them speaking on it that perked my ears right is what what does that mean how does that get addressed next season and how much of that is is what Mike was saying, where circumstances being out of their control lead to a certain amount of fracturing. And that's what we saw at the end of the Phoenix series. Is I, That's why I, I was very uh, pessimistic. It was like, oh, this is a team that's not together and they're starting to break apart. And that's what happens. Well, part of me feels like, too, is so I'm almost always someone who takes the off the court sort of togetherness stuff and values that at a high level, because I think that stuff is is super important. But Mike's point about team building is also like right there, right? And the chicken and the egg question, that applies to so many different areas of roster building and what it looks like and the off-court personality stuff and what that mix looks like could foil even the most talented roster that you have if those guys can't find a way at some point to sort of meld things together what greases that though a lot of times is on court fit and so Mm -hmm. i think back to kobe and Shaq, right and sort of the oil and vinegar nature that they would have as teammates but then i look at them on the court and i'm just like oh there's the most dominant post interior player in the league and one of the most dominant perimeter offensive players in the league right and they are both two-way players and if they're oil and vinegar off the court they're peanut butter and jelly on the court the on the court stuff can almost find a way to paper over some of the off-court chemistry stuff it's like i think of like luca and kp this year right and and Mark Cuban sort of speaking to this idea like, oh, you know, they're not best friends off the court. And and maybe that's seeping into some of the on-court stuff. Well, you know what? I can guarantee you if KP was playing at a bit of a higher level and could beat switches when they're switching wings on to him and was a more dynamic player and things looked better on the court, no one would even be talking about whether or not they go to dinner after the game together and so i go back to what do the lakers need from their complementary players to support lebron and ad and in their big guys i think they need defense and from their wings i think they need shooting and if the shooter can be like a secondary ball handler or even at sometimes a primary ball handler that's ideally what you want. And then I look back to Trez and Dennis and where were their weakest areas as the season went on and in the playoffs, Trez wasn't a defender and Dennis's shot failed him. 
it went away and his confidence did too. Throughout the season, you heard Dan say like, our off-court chemistry is great. We need to find a way to bring that on to the court together. Well, you know what helps facilitate that on-court chemistry. It's how do the skill sets mesh? How do things fit together? And when players are talented enough, guys, you can get to 21 and six because the talent level is there. And on any given day, those guys are going to beat you because they're just better players than you. But when you get to the postseason and the quality of guys is higher across the board, it's harder to say, well, I'm just better than the guy across from me. Like, no, that dude's good too. You've got to find other ways to beat them. And that's where the meshing of skill sets matters. And when this front office is doing player evaluation, I think that's the stuff they're going to need to zero in on as much as how do these guys fit off of the court? Because I think any LeBron and AD led team are, are going to find a way to balance that off court chemistry appropriately. And those player evaluations are, there's a certain alchemy to them where all of these factors that we've discussed so far play into that. And it's a matter of understanding how much of each is appropriate. And not only will the front office be doing that, we'll be doing those player evaluations as well. And I think that doing it through the prism of the NBA playoffs is really important, right? Kind of reverse engineering is how did these guys fit with the team, even in our short playoff run, and, and what would that look like going forward? And to that end, we're going to start talking a little more general NBA as the NBA playoffs go on. So we're going to take a break, come back, and give some thoughts on a series or two. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, Mike, I've been really fascinated by this Utah Clippers series. I think that even though Utah is up two to one, I think the Clippers are favored. They had a win the other night, you know, where they really turned up the ball pressure. Mike Conley being out, that that has been rough for Utah. But that said, Donovan Mitchell's been incredible. Uh, it, it's a, a remarkable series of kind of how cohesion and system with one high level shot maker matches up against these real wing ball pressure team. I don't know. I've loved that series. I'm curious your thoughts on it so far. Yeah. The, the first thing that stands out to me is that the Clippers should win this. They're better. Uh, They have more talent. They have more options to go to. They have more ways they can play. And they, they basically just failed to do so. And what I thought was some relatively obvious lineup stuff in the first two, like they stayed big. 
they they stayed big against Rudy Gobert. And what we've seen in playoffs past and from the Lakers smashing the Jazz last regular season was you got to play small at the five and just pull Rudy out and go away from him. And they don't have a second answer. They, like, they can't go uh, to some other – everything that you do should be towards minimizing Gobert because they, they have to have him on the floor if they're going to have success. And I thought the Clippers finally did that in game three. And just look in, in what the difference in minutes are. So instead of starting Zubats and just trying to sort of hold up down there, um, they start Marcus Morris and they start Batum. They played Batum 35 minutes. He played fewer the first couple of games. And so we, we don't need to go super deep into it. I just thought that was the the interesting chess match part of it that the Clippers probably should have seen for the from the early portions of it because that's what the history of this Utah Jazz team has been. And that's why I was so down on them throughout the regular season, saying that they're a system team. You eventually can can create the kind of matchups where you're going to be able to attack Gobert in a way um, and, and essentially win the series that way. And the one thing that I'm that I'm a little bit I want to bring Phoenix into it while still staying on this series is just they've looked like the more hungry team um, out of all these. And maybe that's because they have an advantage going against a Denver team now that is just down. Right. That is like they they happen to draw Portland in round one, but they know they don't have the guns. And so right. Phoenix is pouncing just like Phoenix pounced on the Lakers when AD went down. So mm-hmm. but that is the look of a team. That's what the Lakers had last year. And that's what they're going to have next year. As LeBron and AD sit in their houses and watch these playoffs and just LeBron afterwards puts Gladiator on for the 950th time. And right. And it prevent- so all of that stuff, uh, Darius, take it where you will. But uh, that's I'm th- I'm thinking in these bigger picture thoughts, even while watching the uh, the specific games in this Clipper Jazz series that Pete started the question with. Yeah, I think the Clippers Jazz series is interesting, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Mike, in terms of trying to minimize Gobert, but that's where I pivot back to Conley. Mitchell is such a dynamic player, but he uses Gobert more as a prop in order for Mitchell to get to his spot on the floor where he can either get himself going or spray to a shooter. I think that his playmaking has taken another leap for him this year where he is much more capable of picking out players around the perimeter that really gets the jazz going in into what like Doris Burke has been calling like the blender and they just churn you down driving kick driving kick driving kick swing 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 suddenly oh there's Joe Ingles wide open and it's just like oh man it's Ingles now I think that Conley's chemistry with Gobert to me has been so important to Utah's success over the course of of this regular season. And it was one of the reasons why when Mitchell went down with his high ankle sprain towards the end of the season and Utah basically didn't really miss a beat. Like they struggled. Ah, they were like 500. They need Mitchell, man. I'm going to go no, on my no, Mitchell no. rant Mitchell's in a second. A, but no, they were like a 500 team. When Mitchell's a down. tremendous player and I'm not taking anything away from, from Mitchell. I also thought the Jazz sort of got away from some of what made them successful and they were like clearly the number one seed and then they started to fall off, basically. And Mike sort of predicted that very early in the mm-hmm. season. Like, I see this Utah team probably fading because they are more of a system-based team and as teams start to catch up to that, especially one that's as reliant on the three ball, it's going to be tricky for them to continue to excel. My point about Conley, though, is, and I see this some in the Sun series, too, is you can really see how valuable the second side 
creator is and the second side really good strong guard can be towards facilitating system offense right and utah runs a different system than what the suns run but it's just as important to have that balance and it's one of the reasons why Utah has been so, so good is, is that they can play strong side action with, with Conley and Gobert, but they can also play strong side action with Mitchell. And when either of those pairings, right, is on the other side of the floor, they're just so dangerous overall as, as a team. And I honestly think Conley might allow them to play bigger more often because of his ability to involve Gobert in ways that is going to optimize him more versus what the Clippers are trying to actually do. And it's just super interesting to me when I watch that series, Pete B, because I do have sort of thoughts about, man, like, how would the Lakers look against this this Jazz team? And how would they look against this Clippers team? Because I, too, in getting back to the first part of the pod, am sort of wistful about what could have been, right, when, when it comes back to these Lakers. But talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing with the Jazz and Mitchell specifically. Conley is very important because the Clippers are a really good ball pressure team. And in this series, they've been so Mitchell-centric, and I'll get to him in a sec, that it's not... They're not running a lot of their handoffs, a lot of their motion strong action that they that they run. It's like we're giving the ball to Donovan and letting him go to work, as they should. But what ball pressure does from the Clippers is it disrupts play, you know, it's a it's a deflection where the timing of the play ends up getting thrown off because the ball was deflected. It pushes catches out 30, 40 feet. That was something that happened a lot in yesterday's game where and then that reduces the effectiveness of Bogdanovich, of Royce O'Neal, even though I, I like O'Neal quite a bit. Um Joe Ingles had a hell of a game, but it, it reduces the effectiveness of shooters and just the offense in general. With respect to Mitchell, I'm someone who for a while now, I've been in like the 97th percentile in terms of my opinion on Donovan Mitchell versus most people, right? It, meaning that I am way higher on him than most people. If he's not a superstar already, he is right on the doorstep. I think he's the best player on Utah. And every advanced analytic, right, every one number metric says it's Gobert and that it's not even close. And that, in fact, even Mitchell is overrated and i've had people whose basketball opinion i respect tell me they think he's the third best player on utah behind conley i thought yesterday's game illustrated the immense value of shot making and how much more important it is than say the rim protection of gobert they scored what buck 32 last night and a lot of those by the way were on rotations where gobert was slow there was a play in the third quarter i believe may have been early in the fourth, where Kawhi was posting up on O'Neal and he drop-stepped baseline and Kawhi got a reverse layup on that. And they called a timeout. They go to timeout and you see O'Neal like yelling at Gobert. Maybe he that's too strong been. of a word. And he should have well, been, he, right? He should have been talking to him about where the help was. Like, well, he was supposed animated, to give baseline help. Yeah, that's the thing. When, You're supposed to give baseline help here. Exactly. One of the interesting things, though, about that game and this speaks to that idea of elite shot making is king over anything else, is Utah, I saw a stat, I think it was Ben Dowsett, who does a good job of covering Utah, that they only ran 16 ball screens toward Gobert. A big part of the Clippers' strategy was to pull Gobert away from the rim, as Mike said, with lineups, but also not run action toward him, right? So they're running most of their ball screens at 
the at their fours, at their threes, but not having Gobert as the contained guy there while pulling him away on a Marcus Morris in the corner. And that is the fundamental difference. You can give the ball to Donovan Mitchell anytime, and he can control 80% of your offensive plays. And this is true of any elite shot maker. He is one of the best in the game at shooting out of a jump stop. The way he and that is what makes him such a remarkable pull-up three-shooter, which in the playoffs, pull-up jump shots, I think, are the most important shot, what distinguish teams that win from teams that don't. I could go off on another five minutes on this, but I, I'm curious, in a broader sense, how you guys value shot-making versus rim protection from watching the playoffs and watching these high-end series, guys that can hit these ridiculous shots, to me, they're king over anything else. And even though Gobert is a more complete player, Donovan Mitchell's a more important one. Yeah, I I'm I'm going to go the other way here, Pete. So, and as specifically to Mitchell, but as part of the argument, the whole shot making as the best skill thing. The first thing that makes me think of is the six man scorer, and that's always bugged me. That trope, the guy who can come in and just sort of get buckets, right? And so, uh, in recent years, not to get out to, with the place I always seem to get to with the Lou Williams thing, but <laughs> uh-huh. you know, Donovan Mitchell. For is you're right, he is elite at creating and at least getting a shot off like that because of his particular package of explosiveness and uh, quickness and all that. But he's a career 43.9% shooter and he doesn't he doesn't defend that well, Pete. So you who, can't who cares be, about his free, his field goal percentage in the regular season? This dude's averaged like 35 points a game in multiple playoff series. You have to be a certain caliber. Wait, he's, of only shot played, maker he's, he's only to, played like 30 playoff games. Right. What, what is but, and, and he's an elite scorer in the playoffs, man. He's give they should they should have no business being up to his one team, but his team lost in the first round last year. And sure they, they could have won, you know, uh-huh. but like, but again, so his his it's like if you want to be, and yes, he's played 30 postseason games, his points per game is is very nice it's 28.5 but again it's on 44 percent from the field and you know his free throw attempts are actually pretty good that's the thing that brings him around to me to make him better like you know an all-star level player but you're not a superstar if you can't go down on the other end and shut somebody down and he can't do it unless you're like unless you're steph curry uh so that so that's where i go i, I have a difference uh Pete, by the way you're muted uh i know you're gonna you're trying to come back at me <laughs> there, there's a difference between Donovan Mitchell and the elite two-way wings. There, there just is, and I, oh, I agree so, with that. And and that's where I'm not. So I'm. That's the difference between an all-star and a superstar. And this is the whole thing they were arguing on TNT. If you can't dominate the game in more than one way, and he can dominate some games as a scorer at, when he's hot, like when he's in rhythm, he can dominate games. But if he's not, like in Game Three, then his team's in big trouble. Where oh, he was Kobe, great on the off. He if was Kobe great Bryant on was, game If Kobe three, Bryant's shot was off, right, it, then he can still kill you on defense. And he can kill mm-hmm. you by doing by doing other stuff. And mm-hmm. he can even do it with, a little, with playmaking when he wanted to. Mitchell doesn't have that level. And, and that's where when he gets talked about in that way, like Stephen A. Smith saying he's better than John Stockton and, and uh, Carl Malone, like that's that's the level that he doesn't have. I'm not making that argument. And Darius, I'll, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this in a, in a sec. But I'm not making the argument that that I don't know why we do that. It's his fourth year in the league. What are we doing? Like it's just a, a dumb thing to get engagement. But he is a the caliber of shot maker that he is. Maybe he's shooting 44% from the field. You know what he's shooting on his pull-up threes or on his threes in general? And these are shots that are 
these are the shots available in the playoffs. Not anybody can score 28 and a half a game in the playoffs. And he's a three level scorer. Some of the shots he was making last night where he's jumping into contact and as he's falling, he's banking shots in. He had one from the left side of the rim, one from the other that Mitchell, if he's not, I agree with you that, you know, two way wings that are shot makers, obviously that's a better type of player than Donovan Mitchell. But if you can get to a certain level of shot making of which pull up threes, especially off of ball screens are super important and you can put pressure on the rim and you can hit that pull up mid range shot. For me, Darius, there's a completeness to his scoring ability that if you have all of these boxes as a scorer, it puts you into a certain, maybe not to that dominant two-way wing caliber, I'll give you that, but you can build an offense around a guy like that that can succeed in the playoffs, and that's no small feat. Well, especially if the passing continues to improve. So um, a couple of things, regular season stats, so, and this is where sample size starts to get tricky, right? And and how you balance the longer sample size of a regular season versus a smaller sample size of a playoff series or two playoff series where the stakes are so much higher and the level of play is so much higher, right? And the continual evolution of player and team-specific game game plans that only get harder and harder because you're playing the same opponent night to night. And so Mike... Last season in the playoffs, Mitchell in first round series, he shot 53% from the field and had a true shooting percentage of 696. Everybody in that series the, shot like 50, 55%. No, man. What? Six, like 70% true shooting on what was his usage? I just said that was a shootout. That's my point. So that was Mitchell and Murray going back, going back and forth, taking open shots, and neither one of them defended the other. Usage rate in that Denver series last season, 37.5. This year, seven playoff games again, right? His usage rate is even higher, 38.9. And his true shooting is 617. He's got a three-point rate of 436. So a three-point rate over 40% is going to drag down your overall shooting percentage. But if you're a good enough shot maker, it's going to elevate your true shooting, right? right. And so right. your- And the free throws. Well, and your free throws, right, mm-hmm. Mike? So he may end up being a 46 or 47% shooter as a guard, which is actually very good, right? Because guards don't live at the rim as much. But if you're true shooting, is 61.7 or 62 like i'm sorry like close to 70 percent is just like that's an outrageous number and that wouldn't sustain over the course of of a playoffs and i think it speaks to mike's point about like the general flow and tenor of that series where denver was not capable of defending a guard like him but even me saying a guard like him i think speaks to pete's point is that he is one of those types of guards. He is a three-level scorer as a guard. And Mike, to sort of offer a bridge between the point that you're making and the point that Pete is making, in the modern NBA, there are two types of elite superstars to me. There are the two-way players who can be dominant offensive players and highly impactful to dominant defensive players. And those are the like the LeBron, the Kawhi, the 
the Anthony Davis, the Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant. right? Right. Like there's that level player. And then there is the uber super talented offensive player who can be average to a bit below average and sometimes maybe a bit above average depending on the game and the matchup and everything else defensive player but is an offense into of himself that's the james hardens that's steph. the steph curry's right dame, dame. trey young we'll see about zion Trey Young is making his name. Zion has not played no. a playoff game yet. I'm just he saying as a prototype of a player. He's a he's yes. a dominant yeah. p- offensive player, period. Yes. Who doesn't give you yes. a lot on defense. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But there is uh there's a dominant player on Booker, offense as a scorer. Booker to an extent. Yeah. And the playoffs is where you start to prove that. And right? Can like, I can I interject one thing into this, Darius? Yes. Height. Okay. This like this is where Donovan Mitchell gets punished by me. Uh, but it's just physics. Like he's six one, and so that's all. I'm not none of this. None of the things that, that uh, we're saying about him, I'm meaning to demean. It's just that I haven't seen it. I haven't seen like Dwayne. The people want to talk about Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade was more like six four. And go check mm-hmm. out Wade's year four numbers. So just so twenty seven point four points, seven and a half assists, two steals, one and a half blocks. Right on forty nine percent from the field. So different player. Wade's a first ballot Hall of Famer. That's my point, though. So let's not get let's not chart to talk about Mitchell's great. He's an all star, but he's not in he's not in the level where he can take a team to a championship as the best player. That's my point. I mean, there are like four guys in the NBA that can do that. Yeah, exactly. So what what are we talking about? But I'm just trying to slander Rudy Gobert, and you come in here, (laughs) and you come in here comparing Mitchell to dominant two way wins. That's what he's been compared to. I'm just trying to say you can go away from Rudy. I wasn't comparing him to them. I'm just saying that you can go away from Rudy Gobert on defense. Now, I'm talking more philosophically about something that that annoys me about how basketball is evaluated, right? I'm with you is on that, that. I'm with you. What Donovan Mitchell is good at, great at, you can do it on every play. You can yes. give him the ball every time. Rudy Gobert, by virtue of being a defensive player – Teams can go away from him. He is the reactor. So as great as he is defensively, there's this whole thing about yep. like, oh, he gets played off of the floor. That that, that goes too far. He does yes. not get played off the floor. He, there was one series where he had – he that hadn't happened in a long time. Rudy Gobert is a phenomenal defensive player. I'm just saying by virtue of him being a defensive player that you do not get to dictate the terms of that. Can I make one more point? Because I'm going to tie it back into the Lakers here. First of all, though – I wanted to say Luca's on that list of oh, yeah. offensive dominant superstar of level players, right? And so I didn't want to go a whole pod and if any Mavs fan, Ooh. I don't want them in and my the mentions. Tiny, and Luca and Steph are so dominant on offense that they like we don't even care as much about defense as long as they're standing there. Like is there yes. that ridiculously well, overwhelming on that end? My I'm say, and I'm saying Donovan side. Mitchell is knocking on the door of that type of offensive player. Mm. And to speak to the size, Mike. Lucas six seven. So on defense, he yes. can do other things right. defensively right. that that impact the game. That said, back to your Rudy Gobert point, Pete. In watching the Jazz play, that's where I was a little bit like, man, as good as great as Gobert is, this is why I'd rather have Anthony Davis on defense, even if he is not the oh, yeah. same elite. Like, like oh shit, I see you and. I'm honestly just going to do something totally different. I'm not like, even going to take the shot. Yeah. Or, yeah. or when they take the shot, it like, 
they do a contortion of their body in in a way where it's just like, oh man, like I saw the jazz account respond to some tweet where they called it like the go bear scare, where it's just like guys sort of get into a crouch before they're going to go up to shoot because they're kind of like, like, oh no, he's standing right there. And that's a real thing. That's a real thing. When he's engaged on the ball, anywhere within 15 feet, basically. That, but then I think of a player like AD where AD can play you at the point of attack, but he can also be that guy who is on the back line who is in rotation all of the time when AD is at his best. And so to close this pod down on sort of a Lakers point again, and it speaks to the point that you had made earlier in the pod, Pete, about the Lakers not having AD the entire like, Anthony Davis, right, for really the the entire season. That's the dude who is going to make a difference for the Lakers next year as much as anything else that we talk about, right? Because that dude who is able to say, nah, man, anywhere I am on the court as a defensive player, I can be an impact guy. That's going to help fuel whatever team-building conversations this Lakers team has, even as LeBron ages, right? Because... Anthony Davis can be that special a player defensively as well as being just an elite offensive player. And that's why the evaluations of what last year's team was and how we should proceed going forward in the absence of having that guy will be tricky for sure. And we'll be doing it. The front office will be doing it. Uh, Very excited to be back. We are going to be recording on a regular basis going forward like we were toward the end of the season. Uh, Your guys' support has really helped us get to the point where we can can do this as frequently as we were and we'll continue to be going forward. So we're really excited about that. We'll talk a lot of Lakers, get really deep into that. Uh, cover the NBA playoffs and then of course the offseason as it comes up thank you very much for all of your support and helping us get to this point next pod will be tomorrow but until then you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast we'll catch you guys next time James has got it in low to McHale McHale wants to turn his double team just pass out of front broken up by Worthy tip to Magic Worthy dies on his belly Magic scores there's Magic got it Magic fires it's good and the Lakers win the game the Lakers win the game three seconds left A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Freddy pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two. Listen. Shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yes. With a little tough to Alvin Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James. 
putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.